0: Good evening, church. Great to see you on this very happy and cold night. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to, Ma- to Micah chapter 7. You can find that on page 779 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. And you're visiting with us. You may wonder why in the world on Christmas Eve is he looking at the book of Micah. We've been studying through these minor prophets, these short... Books that are at the end of the Old Testament, and uh, we have been studying them in chronological order. This one we've taken a little bit out of chronological order because we wanted to think about this all important, or this very important prophecy that we associate with Christmas. In chapter 5, verse 2, you know it well. Blessed are you. Bethlehem Ephratah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old. And later in that same chapter he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And so we've been studying Micah all uh, during Advent and unpacking the many facets of that kingship of Jesus that Micah prophesied. He would be a king who is from of old. Jesus Christ has been forever in existence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he's also going to be a future king who will bring all things to to underneath his feet for his rule. We've been unpacking the various ways Jesus is our king. Tonight, I want to focus your attention on Jesus' compassion as a king. And for that, I want to look at just a few verses in chapter 7, not those two chapters that, that I have listed for you in the bulletin. We'll just look at a few verses, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 7, and we'll read selected verses. Listen. Listen to the word of God and see if in these verses is not found the kind of king that you and I need this evening. But as for me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me, verse 10. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover Her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire in the streets, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from the river, Egypt Egypt to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds." Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. And then back to verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. those of you who know your Bibles well, it's okay if you don't, but those of you know your Bibles well will hear in the words of Micah, words that you are also familiar with in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah overlapped in their ministries. Micah younger than Isaiah, but they overlapped. They were both calling the people of God to repentance away from their idols and and away from their hopelessness, to return to the Lord. And, and, and then he warns that if they do not return to the Lord, he'll take them into exile, but exile in order to discipline them and to return them to faithfulness and to bring through them the Messiah. And a lot of interchange, a lot of A lot of similar expressions between Isaiah and Micah. They both talk about kings and a ruler, and they talk about beating plows into, uh, swords into plowshares, and talk a lot about darkness and peace. And and you know the familiar verse and verses that we associate with um, Christmas from Isaiah 9, people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. And the people who dwelt in the deepest darkness, on them a light has shone. You might imagine, we might imagine then, if, if these two overlap, we could imagine that they would have a conversation with each other. And it, at one point, the younger Micah might say to his older mentor something like this, hey Ike, I've been reading this very, very long book of yours. You know, I'm only fairly early into it. I've got 66. I've got about 59 chapters to go, 57 chapters to go. Or so, And, and I, I'm confused by this verse that you have in chapter 9. Yeah, you, you say, on the one hand, you say the people who, who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. On the other hand, you say the, those who have sat in darkness have seen a great light. You might consider revising that, making it consistent. Is it walking or sitting? Who's going to see the great light? Is it walkers or sitters? And Isaiah might say, Mike, here's the way it goes. I mean Both. Light will come to both those who walk in darkness and who sit in darkness. Let me remind you what I said in chapter six when I saw the Lord high and lifted up, this train of the robe, train of His robe filling the temple. And you remember, I, I fell to my knees, and I confessed, and I said, "I am a man of unclean lips." And I live among a people of unclean lips. Micah, it's true that we both live in darkness. We are surrounded by darkness. We're overwhelmed by it. We're even victimized by it. And it is also true, Micah, that we contribute to it. We walk in it. Somewhere maybe after that conversation, Micah writes what we have in our verses. Hope, light, the promise of peace for those who walk in darkness and those who sit in darkness. What do you need to know from Jesus, King Jesus for walking in darkness. For those of us, every one of us who walk in darkness. Oh, you notice Micah says that, that um, in verse nine, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now, that's a remarkable thing. It, it, uh, Micah, yes, you say, well, he's a prophet. He should readily come to this realization of, of sinning. But if, if we had time to look at chapter 6, we would see that, that he has been speaking on behalf of the people of Israel so far. He's been representing them to the Lord. And he starts out at the beginning of that chapter, woe is me, Sounds like Isaiah, I am ruined in effect. And that's a turn of attitude among the people of Israel. If if Micah is representing them, that they are now recognizing that they are ruined because of their sin, it's a turn from their pride that he has been hammering against earlier in the chapters because they did not recognize that they had sinned. They recognized that they were the people of God and they took great pride in his promises and in his care and they were resting in that they were they were they were satisfied with that. They thought that God owed them his blessings. They were smug in their sacrifices. They were religious people. They were good citizens. It didn't matter that they were trampling on the poor and, and uh, using them to their own ends and things like that. And God leaned into those sins. And God was hammering against those sins, those blindnesses, until finally it seems to get through. And they say, we are ruined and we deserve it. They acknowledge that they have sinned. This word for sin is a word that's used often in the Bible to describe missing the mark. God has a target, God has an ideal, God has a standard and it's perfection. He doesn't grade on a curve. He makes an absolute standard and he says, this is the way you are to live. It is to be in conformity to my character. And when we miss that mark, we sin. And no matter how profoundly or slightly we miss that mark, the Bible says that we deserve judgment, even eternal judgment. These people have come to the point that they are acknowledging that, that what God has said about them is true. You are right when you say, when you describe the way I missed the mark, I deserve your judgment. And then they say, before that, before they acknowledge that they deserve his indignation, Notice in verse 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait to the God of my salvation. It seems kind of reversed, doesn't it? We tend to think that once we are terrified, we're traumatized, frightened out of our skin, then we turn from our sin and ask God for salvation. But just the opposite has happened here. Yes, Micah has been warning them of the judgment that would come because of their sin. But in the midst of that, we've noticed as well, he reminds them of the grace of God. That God is only pointing out your sin because he knows that as long as you live this way, you will will live in a lesser way than than he created you for. And so they say, we have heard in your voice, Micah, the promise of a God of salvation. We wait for that salvation. The root of this word is Jesus. And when they recognize how gracious God has been to them, though they have walked in the darkness though they have lived in ingratitude, though they have turned their backs on his goodness, though they have been smug and prideful in their false righteousness, when they think on the richness of the salvation of God, the love of God coming in Christ Jesus, their hearts are melted and they say, we deserve your judgment. Have mercy on us forgive us you know if we have lived in christian circles very long <clears throat> or even in a, a, a country where christianity has been so uh, so popular so so broadly accepted we can take this idea of forgiveness for granted We can think that, you know, everybody around the world knows about forgiveness. Everybody around the world knows that we should forgive and everybody around the world wants to be forgiven. But do you know that that's just not true? Do you know there is no concept of forgiveness in Old Testament religions outside of of, uh, worship of God. There was no concept of forgiveness among the Greek gods. There was no concept of it. Now there was the idea of I've got to get these gods off my back. Or there's the idea that, that when gods get angry they demand a payment or they demand a blood sacrifice to, to turn their wrath away. But no concept of of a a, a God who made things, who was superior to human beings who would say, I love you, and even though you have wronged me, if you come to me, I will forgive you. There was absolutely no concept of that. It was only in the revelation of, of the gospel in the Old Testament through the Old Testament prophets, and especially in the New Testament through the incarnation of Christ, that there was this idea that the God we know in our heart of hearts exists and has created everything and with whom we have to do, and that somehow we've, we've ticked him off and we've made him bad, and somehow the things that we are doing that, that are wrong, we, we shouldn't be doing them, and we deserve this judgment, that, that he offers forgiveness a radical new idea that that pain that's deep in your conscience can be can be put away it can be It can be satiated, it can be calmed because God is able to forgive and he was able to forgive because he sent his son to pay the penalty that we owed to God. He died in our place. He shed his blood to make the perfect sacrifice and if we just ask for that, amazing, we can be forgiven by God, reconciled to him made his friend, made his child. Do you know that that concept is dying in our world? The concept of forgiveness. Well, it's it's wasting away, passing away in our culture, isn't it? One strike and you're out. I will, we think each one of us perhaps in our culture says I'm going to make a standard of right and wrong and if you cross this line right here you do it one time you will never be forgiven. How have we come to this place? By losing the idea of a God who forgives and how have we lost the idea of a God who forgives the same way it was covered up In the Old Testament false religions and in the false religions of the New Testament, it was covered up by people justifying themselves, saying, I am okay. I am the way I ought to be, and the way I ought to be is the way I feel. And if I feel this way, then this is what is right. And if you transgress my feelings, then you are wrong and you will not be a part of my world. Now that can feel good for a while to put yourself in the place of judgment and to judge these other people until you need forgiveness. And there's no one out there to forgive you. And when there's no one out there to forgive you because you're living according to a a worldview in which forgiveness can't live because you're living in a worldview where there is no such thing as sin and no such thing as judgment and no such thing, therefore, of a God who forgives. While it can be disturbing to our sensitivities, the very first thing that must occur in your life to be in a healthy, flourishing state is to say, Lord, everything that you say about me in your word, where I fall short, you are right. Forgive me. And then it's amazing that if you can be reconciled with God, then really there's no one from whom you should remain unreconciled. And then when people transgress against you or disappoint you, then it's, it's not easy, but it's easier to forgive someone who wrongs you when you realize, you know, I've done the same and worse to God, and he has forgiven me. I remember reading one time in a commentary by a British scholar named John Stott, that He was told by a friend of his who was a psychiatrist, he said, you know, I could empty all of the insane asylums throughout Great Britain if I could convince everyone, every person in those places, they are forgiven. The predominant cause, he said, the predominant cause, not the universal cause, but the predominant cause of so many patients that I see who are struggling with anger and angst and, and, uh, and, and isolation is they have no concept of being forgiven by God and therefore no concept of being forgiven by others or extending the same. Here is good news. On those who walk in darkness, the light has come. The light is Jesus. But then it is also true, isn't it? We know it in this city. We've known it, especially in this congregation in the last half year. We dwell in darkness. That there are sins and evils in this, in this world and in our city and affecting our church and our family members that are overwhelming, dark. It seems hopeless. We encountered another... Terrifying thing this week, and, and a colleague said, I am so sick and tired of sin. We not only have walked in darkness, we live in darkness, and we are victims of darkness that uh, that uh, we have not necessarily contributed to. Is there hope? Micah says there is. It is because we have a shepherd. You see what he says in verse 14? Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Shepherd your people with your staff. Where is the light in that word for us who dwell in darkness? Because you remember from Psalm 23 that there is, that word translated staff can also be rod. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Just like the shepherd who leads with his staff and also protects his sheep by beating off their enemies with his staff, with the rod. And the promise from Scripture is that this Jesus who is coming, he will be the scepter, he will be the rod of wrath against the darkness. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There is this promise that this darkness that we experience will not always be true. This is not the way it is always going to be. And there are moments when the light breaks into the darkness and dispels it. And we know that there is hope for the future. But there is a certain hope for the future. When Jesus, the rod and staff of God, will someday once and for all conquer all his and all our enemies. We need that kind of shepherd. And we need a shepherd as well who Micah tells us in chapter 5. Verse 4, is one who stands to shepherd his people. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Why would he say that he stands to shepherd the people of God? Well, I think because we need, we need to know not only that, that, uh, that judgment is coming on all sin. We need to know his comfort in the meantime. And, and this surely is something like Stephen saw when he was being pelted with rocks and, and being killed as the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. Remember, as he was dying, he looked and he saw his Savior standing at the right hand of God. What is that? But the posture of care and concern. Jesus is not on his throne whittling his thumbs waiting for God to say, time is up, go and get your people, but rather he is standing, he is peering after you and me. He's concerned for us. He weeps with us and for us. He looks after us. He knows what the end is going to be, but he is standing waiting for us to come home one by one and saying the darkness will not overcome you. It feels like it is, but it will not. You know, this week I was thinking about a sermon I heard by an old time revival preacher shortly after I became a Christian. He talked about his, his battle with anxiety as a, as a little boy And that that his dad was a traveling salesman. He knew that his dad loved him, but his dad didn't wasn't able to attend a lot of the things that he was involved in that brought him anxiety, like baseball. And baseball, he said, of all things, was difficult for him. All the spotlight is on you, especially when you're batting. And there there was a a a especially big game in his little league uh, world, and he was up to bat. The pressure was high. He was thinking, if only my dad could be here to encourage me. Strike one. Couple of balls. Strike two. The next pitch, he closed his eyes. He swung wildly. Hit the ball. Went over the shortstop's head. It sliced... To the right, got just past the right fielder, went all the way to the corner. He came around first base, and as he did, he heard a familiar voice and looked in the stands, and there was his dad standing. He knew it clearly was his dad because he was wearing, he said, a blue serge suit, a wool suit, in the middle of summer. That's my dad. Come on, son. Run, run, son, you can do it. He charged around second and mishandled the ball and the cutoff man and his dad said, come home, son, come on home, son. You can do it, come on home. He rounded third, ignored the third base coach. <laughs> Slid into home just ahead of the throat of the plate he said I'll never forget those words my dad standing in a blue serge suit saying come on home son come home when the lights go off tonight there's nothing but candles it's just a glimmer of light In your sanctified imagination, I want you to cast forward to your Jesus in a blue robe saying, I know it's dark. Come home. Come home. I'm waiting for you. I'll get you there. Come home.